slash and cast. All right. Happy New Year, folks. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor John Wesley Shipp about the stage, growing up in Virginia, The Flash, the rise of the comic book convention, Dawson's Creek, and much more. As always, thanks for listening. Make sure to send us a screenshot of those reviews to get yourself a shout-out and a discount on future merchandise. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. So we have a platform to jump off here to get us started. Just take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I was probably a combination of book reader and a little bit of troublemaker. I think we all got some of that in us. <laughs> we hope so. Anyway, if you're an actor, you better have a little troublemaker in you. <laughs> so what sort of books did you lean towards? Were you a, you know, a big fantasy guy or what was going on with that? You know what? I was really into classic literature, as strange as that sounds. You know, Dickens, James Joyce. In high school, my favorite course was self-discovery through great books. I did not read a lot of sci-fi, and I did not, I'm ashamed to admit, I did not read comic books. When they came to me and said Flash in uh, 1990, I said, you mean Flash Gordon? Of course, now when people say that to me, I act highly insulted. No, <laughs> the Flash. Get it right. No, I really came to the whole comic book medium in 1990 on the heels of the Batman 60s mm. series, which I thoroughly enjoyed as a kid. But I basically, that was my exposure to comic book entertainment, you know, right. which made me initially a little bit shy about trying it. Yeah, I could see that. Were your parents involved in the arts at all? Is that what sort of helped usher you that way? Or was it, you know, just by chance? You know, it's interesting. My sister, who is a classical vocalist and organist and ended up being a director of a music program, very large music program in Atlanta at a, at a very progressive church. She was in performing. She performed some opera in New York and concertized. And I started studying music at a very young age. I think it was because our father was minister, was mm -hmm. a preacher. And so there were lots of opportunities and encouragement as kids to get up and perform. So I think that's where it came from. Our We started taking our musical training because my mom's dad was very much into the arts and he wanted Karen and I to start taking 
piano lessons. So that was the beginning, really. And then I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, on a voice performance scholarship in the opera theater department. This is after studying keyboards for 10 years. And then I switched my major to theater, and then I dropped out and moved to New York. You just decided to pursue it professionally at that point? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. It kind of all unfolded kind of organically because I went to do theater in Holland, Michigan. I did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf Studio Theater Production and Of Mice and Men. And my theater director in college who had directed me in a musical production at IU in Bloomington of Company by Sondheim. He was moving to New York with his friend Denise. And we were all working at a little theater that summer in Holland, Michigan, the Hope Summer Repertory Theater. And so he was leaving as a professor. Their suggestion was, if you want to pursue a career in acting, if you want to go back to school, apply to NYU so you could start making contacts while you're training. Otherwise, move to New York, which is what I did with <laughs> them. I had a built-in family, a CCH Pounder, Mark Bego, you know, all these people who had a system of how to break into the business. You know, you get your Ross reports, you get your headshots, you follow up with a postcard with your picture on it, you call, you wait tables, you do workshops for no money, you try to get an agent, you try to get them to submit you, and then hopefully you start working, and then the career builds on itself, which is basically what happened at the end of 1979 was the beginning of my professional career. It's got to be nice when, you know, someone presents you with a concrete method and then you can realize, you know, well, this is how we can do this instead of, you know, counting on luck. I would never have moved to New York just by myself. Hey, I'm going to drop out of college, move to New York. But I moved up with a built-in family. And like you say, they had procedures. They were mm -hmm. like, look, this is what you do. Lynn, the late Lynn Thigpen, wonderful actor. So if you had to classify yourself, you know, stereotypically high school, would you say you were the class clown, jock, nerd? Where would you fit in, you know, those stereotypes? Well, I didn't play sports, but I was president of my junior and senior classes in high school in Louisville, Kentucky, at Butler High School, a school of about 3,000 students. But I definitely would have been considered, which is kind of outrageous, I would have considered more on the, I don't want to say brainy side, but more the analytical. I already said I loved books, I loved reading, I was high marks scholastically, and yet I was, usually those kids aren't popular, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. we're not very nice to our smart kids. No, we're right? not, no. <laughs> By and large, in this country, in fact, when I do my Q&As, you know, I tell a room full of people who perhaps were made fun of for reading comics in school, or geeks and nerds and all that, aren't you proud of yourselves? Because yeah. the rest of the entertainment industry finally caught up with you. It's cool yeah. now. Listen, in 1990, I've already said I was hesitant because treatments of comic book superheroes have kind of been spoofed up to that point. Have been two-dimensional. No disrespect to Adam West and Burt Ward's Batman. I loved it. I thought it was enormously entertaining. I did not feel that that's where my interest in talent lie. I had already been in New York for 10 years. I had two Emmys for daytime playing psychotics. I had already been on Broadway. I had done uh, off-Broadway with wonderful actor Judith Ivey and this wonderful musical Philco Blues. And I wanted to be, I fancied myself a serious actor. So yeah. in 
they came about a comic book superhero for television right after I had shot Never Ending Story 2 the summer before and had gotten a manager in LA. I thought, okay, great. You know, I went, the first thing I did was, was a series starring Jack Scalia and I played this crazy artist that interrupted my art opening and slashed all my paintings with a machete. I mean, you know, those were the roles I, I was That's up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> And so when they said two Hollywood heroes, I was like, but then April Webster, wonderful casting director, multiple Emmy award winning, the fine lady has been a fine friend. And she was talking to me, once you talk to I said, April, I just don't, you know, it's like I, you know, I, I study truth of the moment. I study trying to make things as real and as natural as I can, you know, to try to get to what's underneath. Because she said, well, that's why we're coming to you. We know that you work that way. And if this project were what you were describing, do you think I would be attached to it? And she said, all I ask is that you read Danny Bilson and the late Paul DeMeo's treatment. Just read it. And if you can identify with any of it, get back to me. Well, suddenly I'm reading this story about this. If people have heard me say this before, I'm sorry, but this is my journey. You know, <laughs> right, right. Let's hear people, it. You know, there's so, only so many answers before I start making shit up. Right. So, you know. <laughs> I read it. Here was this unblessed son of a cop family where real cops work the streets. My dad was always making fun of me, saying, my mom had told me to be careful. And Emmett Walsh would say, what's he got to do? Stub his toe in a footprint? Actually, I was CSI before CSI was cool. But Barry had gone into the crime lab so his mom wouldn't be worried about all of her men maybe not coming home that night. And then suddenly, I get these powers. You know, I go to catch a bus and I end up 30 miles away in the ocean at Crystal Beach. Or I reach for my coffee cup and it slams up. These things start happening. I have these abilities. And I go to Star Labs to Tina McGee. And this was the first thing that hooked me is that he said, I don't want to be a lab rat. I'm not interested in harvesting these powers. I, don't want, to be, I want to be rid of it. I don't want to know from it. I've accepted who I am, my role in the family, my lot in life. I don't want to run off. I have no interest in these powers until his brother got killed, Jay, who in spite of Jay being his father's favorite, Jay and Barry were very tight, played by Tim Thomerson. And then he gets killed and then it's on. And then there's the exquisite, if my dad knew what I can do, boy, would he have to reassess me. And I can't tell him. I could relate to all of that. I met with Danny and Paul and they were like, you know, the suit will be maybe 25% of the episode. And mostly it'll be shot at night. Tim Burton's Batman and our Flash were being developed at Warner Brothers at the same time around a new aesthetic. Right. For telling these stories for a mainstream audience, for an adult audience, taking these people seriously, trying to find out what would happen to an ordinary guy who suddenly got these extraordinary abilities. What, how would it play with him? What would he do with them? They said, we promise we won't have you saving a kid from a burning building on page 11. Well, by the third script, I was saving a kid from a burning <laughs> building, but it was okay. <laughs> but so I was like, okay, so as I'm understanding it, my emphasis is on Barry Allen. Who is this guy? What makes him tick? What are his dynamics? What does he want? What are his obstacles? How does he react to this event? And if I played him truthfully enough in the context of a superhero entertainment, no larger than life, that I could hook the audience into who this guy is. Mm -hmm. And they could relate to Barry Allen 
as a person to be taken seriously isn't really the right word, but truthfully, you know. I mean, even the comedy, of course we had comedy. I'm in bed with Iris, and you can tell we're like, you know, we're both in various states of undress, and we're there, and her first line is, I can't believe it was over so quickly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then you're panning our bodies, and then you see we're watching the TV, and it's a boxing match. And I said, yeah, knockout in the third round, you better figure. But of course, the joke being, the flash making love you know <laughs> so the humor that was there was based in character it wasn't making fun of these people it's like yeah well, well what effect would that have you know right and so you know i was interested plus my manager at the time said john this is going to be the most expensive show warner brothers has ever done for television they're pioneering new special effects danny said we promise we won't put you in a pair of red tights we're building <laughs> four suits at the cost of $100,000 in 1990, which yeah. is what, $345,000 today, half a million dollars. It was a high-tech construction, and we're going to go about this, and it's going to be the beginning of something new. And so I auditioned with 50 or 60 other guys. The invitation wasn't to come do this part. It was come audition. So I auditioned. I met with Warner Brothers people. I met with the CBS people. They took me and one other actor to the network, and they ended up casting me. From this side of my involvement, playing five different characters across four different shows over 30 years, it's been an amazing journey. While we're on The Flash, let's just stick on it. You know, like you said, you just do the original Flash. When the opportunity comes back around for the CW Flash, how do they approach you? Well, I had, you know, God knows, over 24 years, I was the only live action Flash. Right. right? It fell in and out of development. Ryan Reynolds was going to do it, then he wasn't. Somebody else was going to do it, then he wasn't. I heard they were getting it together. Greg Berlanti, who was one of my head writers on Dawson's Creek, Berlanti Productions, was getting it together to do a new Flash series for the CW. And then I heard how Jeff Johns had kind of blown up the Allen family. I was like, wait a minute, Barry's dad is wrongfully convicted of killing Barry's mom in front of a 10-year-old Barry, and he's been in Iron Heights prison for 14 years, and only Barry believes he's innocent? I was like, I don't know what they'll do. They may want to make a complete break with the past, which was the old way of doing it, right? If they end up coming to me, I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not sitting around, oh, call me, you know, be perfectly fine, go. Go do your thing. But if they come to me, that's the role I want because I would want that role anyway. That's just a, a complex set of given circumstances. So we did get a call and they asked to see recent footage. And I was doing a movie at the time called this. Was that The Sector or... I forget what it was, but anyway, we had, I got the rushes from this movie and they sent them out there and they liked what they saw. John Wesley ship in 2014, you know, <laughs> and they said, okay, yeah. And luckily it was a grittier character. Right. And then they offered me the role of Henry Allen. And then it's just rolled out from there. It's just been crazy how long, it seems like it came out just yesterday, but then when you really think about it, that show has really been rolling for a while now. That's right. People are sad because, you know, I was in the season finale of Stargirl that I got to come in and do a little tag, sort of a little valedictory thing at the end of Stargirl season finale on December 7th. It's not going another season. I go back and shoot some more Flash next month for season nine, its final season. So all these shows are wrapping down as a result of Next Star buying the CW and they're getting rid of these expensive shows. And from what I understand, they want political commentary and cheaper shows for an older audience. 
you know. Because these shows are expensive to produce. Yeah. And as we know, people are all sad. And I say, but wait a minute. We have to reflect on what we've had for a decade. Exactly. Not a lot of shows last that long. And not only Flash, but think about being a comic book entertainment fan, superhero fan. And we had 10 years of multiple shows. The multiverse intersecting, overlapping, crossing over all these different characters for a decade. I mean, that's, has that ever, that hasn't. 20 years ago, you'd have never bet money on that happening. Never. So, yeah, it's drawing to a close, but man, what a decade. And we'll always have that. Yeah, and superheroes aren't going anywhere. Like, I hate it. People have it, their opinions on it, but these things, they're not going anywhere. They've been, since the 60s, they haven't went anywhere. Or the 40s, really, so it's just going to keep going. The 40s, keep going. yeah. yeah. Jay Garrick, my man. My man, Jay Garrick. Joe <laughs> uh, Stanton drew that for me. That pointing that Oh, yeah, Jake I see it. That's awesome. So if we back up just a little bit, uh, John... What about, I want to ask you about your very first time on stage, whatever you consider that to be either professionally or, you know, elementary school. What was your, what was your very first time on stage? How'd you feel? Like, were you nervous? (laughs) My very first time that I remember ever being on stage was in, of course, being a preacher's kid, we did Christmas there with the church band, played the proverbial shepherd, (laughs) you know? I found out my sister was going to be an angel, and apparently I said, well, she's one devil of an angel. Here I was, like four, you know? (laughs) My first play was in first grade, and it was this play about spring and spring awakening, and I was like, I would come out, and I I was the only one with lines. And I would say lines, and then I'd blow this flute, and something would come to life, either an animal or a tree or this or that. But I have to tell you, until my second year in college, I was convinced I was going to be a musician. That's had been my training my whole life. And then for one reason or another, music became too difficult. And that's what caused me to make the switch to theater. I'm trying to think my first, what I would call at the Wonder Horse Theater, I did different plays. It's hard for me really to remember because it really started, I moved to New York in 1977 and waited tables and, you know, the break came. I would showtime's first original movie for television. I'm like a relic, man. They did a best of off-Broadway series, Passion of Dracula, Me and My Girl, and Tom Ian's The Dirtiest Show in Town. And my grandmother was like, of all those three, did you have to pick the dirtiest show in town? You know, <laughs> my little Southern Baptist grandmother in Norfolk, Virginia, right? Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's more like it picked me. So. <laughs> but my first time, my first time on stage, it was, uh, I, I don't remember what would have been the very first time. It might have been Vera with Kate, this little production down at the Wonder Horse Theater in New York City. I don't really remember. It's like I started performing so young, first in music and then graduating to theater, that performing as a way of life. I mean, I remember in high school, people were going, what am I going to major in? What am I going to major in? I always felt fortunate that I knew that it was going to be some area of performance art. It was going to be some performing of some kind, if not music, then acting. I wasn't really fond of musical comedy. Presentational, you know, Uh, for the same reason I was afraid of superheroes. Presentational. But I always knew that it would be performing of some kind. So does your approach as an actor differ 
to a, to a role, I guess I should say, if you were on stage or on screen, do you approach them differently? The only thing that's really different, of course, creating the inner life, doing the background work, breaking down the script. What does my character want? What are the obstacles? What am I willing to do to get it? When I'm saying X, Y, and Z, what is the act? What am I? Tr- what is my objective? What am I trying? And what am I really saying? When I say this line, what am I thinking? Because people often ask, particularly with daytime, where you're doing, you could be doing, I have done 30 to 40 pages of dialogue, just my scenes a day. While I was doing a play on Broadway, Dancing at Lunacy in 1920, all my children during the day, Broadway at night. And they say, how do you memorize all those lines? I said, that is like the bare minimum of the work. That's not even scratching the surface. The work is getting, how do you get off of the line? Because if you're acting, you can tell actors who are acting on the words. And then you can tell that there's the ones that underneath the words, there's a whole lot of something going on that you may or may not be able to figure out, you know, that makes an, a performance intriguing. The only difference is it's sort of a mind trick. I think of it as when you're in the theater, you have to send it out to the back row. And one thing I, since I started on stage, one thing that was a big adjustment for me is how minimal. You can see I'm a pretty enthusiastic, pretty demonstrative person. Well, the challenge for me was to bring that all in. Right. You know, and I watch some of my performance. Hell, I've been an actor for 43 years. I go back and I look at performances at certain stages of my career and I go, John, (laughs) do less, do less. Because the camera, the theater, you're, you're sending it out to the audience. Performance on camera, you're pulling the audience into you. It's like they say, if it's a film, for example, the raise of one eyebrow could be five feet big. You know, when it's blown up. Yeah, so yeah. You need to be very careful. and it's. But that's still hard for me for this to this day because I'm not, nor have I ever aspired to be hip slick and cool, <laughs> laid back, casual. I've never been that person I've never wanted to be. Quite often I have less is more. And I go, the first time I heard that, I was like, don't be ridiculous. Less is less. Now it might be preferable, but less is never more. More is more, but less may be what you want. And quite often on camera it is. And some of the actors who are most interesting are the ones that are just doing what I'm doing right now, which is just looking at you and trying to think the best way to communicate my thought. That can be very compelling. But I do love the big moments. And I do love the big actors. That's why I like Pacino. It's easy to keep, play everything close to the vest. You know, I call it casual as a surfeit for talent, as a substitute. Oh, I'm just going to keep it very casual. I'm just going to keep it real. But uh, how many people do you know talk like that in real life? Whisper to each other, you know? That's not real. That's your idea of real. But what I love about someone like Pacino, it's much harder to take truth. Where are my hands? You can't see. To take truth all the way out to here. It's much easier you know you know <laughs> so actors like Pacino I mean god his performances slay me because he takes huge risks the most recent one that I saw was the Phil Spector movie that he did about where he played Phil Spector I've watched that 15 times both for him and Helen Mirren because he's all the way out there you know yeah but it's truthful it's truthful and she sells it by listening she tells the story it's fascinating she's coming out on paramount network in 1923 which is a prequel 
to Yellowstone. Right. I can't wait with Harrison Ford. Some cast, right? Yeah, Ellen yeah. I didn't even know that. Ford. It's called 1923. Anyway, through this whole thing, Phil Spector, she's she starts very skeptical. And then she's like, who's this weirdo? And then by degrees, her belief in him and that maybe he's being railroaded because they've let so many celebrities off before. How much evidence do they really have? But her journey of, I thought those two performances, I could, I want to run into the living room and put it on right now <laughs> and just study it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Her, list, her active listening takes you on the journey, takes the audience on the journey that Pacino is on. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating, but I do love... I do love people, actors. I do get bored very quickly with safe, no-risk acting. Just going back to what you said about safe, I talked with a lot of actors that primarily work in theater, and they struggle with toning themselves down for the camera, and a lot of them don't even like it. And they just, their preferences are in theater. Yeah, it's a different thing. People say, which do you prefer? I said, well, it's just totally different ball. They're different ball games. It's like when I did the Tony Award-winning play, Dancing at Lunasa by Brian Friel, the Irish playwright that came over from the Abbey Theater in Dublin, played with an all-Irish cast for, they could only play it for five months, had to be re-rehearsed and replaced with an American cast, except for one actor, Donald Donnelly, who had dual citizenship. Doing that eight times a week, that kind of writing, that textured, layered writing, man, as deep as you wanted to go, there was more to find mm -hmm. every night. But you are doing it eight times a week. So, and we did that for seven or eight months. I did end up hemorrhaging a vocal cord because I was doing 30 pages a day on all my children, going to the theater, I was playing this wild character who is beating up women and then crying because they wouldn't love you know it's like outrageous but i do also like it's like i remember and it can be done anywhere it can be done anywhere it can be done when you have five minutes of rehearsal on daytime you can do the work if someone says i'm going to teach you how to act for daytime run in the other direction <laughs> There's no such thing as soap opera acting. There's good acting, there's bad acting, and occasionally, rarely, there's great acting. And it can be found across all mediums on all platforms. That's always been my argument. Yeah, while we're on theater, uh, something I hear all the time as well to consider is usually more times than not, when you're working on stage, you're dealing with some of the best literature that's ever been written, you know, maybe uh, Chekhov or Shakespeare. And that's not, not that there aren't great TV writers and stuff out there, but that's usually not always the case when you're not working in theater. You know, you're not working with the best stuff that's ever been written. Yeah, yeah. I've been lucky. I've worked with, in daytime, my roles, the role that won me my first time, I was four years, I ran around in a Speedo and sang You Needed Me on Guiding Light. That was my part. You know? <laughs> Kelly Nelson, med student extraordinaire, and some really good writing. Well, that writer went to World Turns, and he wrote this character that started off as a good guy and went all the way out into the most insane storyline. But it was some of the best writing. And my brother says it's still some of the best acting you've ever done total all the way insanity by the end of it in a three-pronged storyline and there wasn't a single miss nobody was where they couldn't have been when something happened that they had to be involved in in order for all three stories to connect to me i won't it's too specific to get into but you know i've worked with really really good writers and i've also found that and this is a big difference in theater you don't change a word you don't change an ellipsis. You don't repeat. But if it's written that way, you say it. 
you find a reason to say it the way it's written. In television, there's more flexibility. I remember once it was something Barry was telling Tina in the lab, and he was burying his heart. He was talking about his struggles, and I was I was having trouble with it. And I said to Danny Wilson, I, I don't think that's what he needs to say. I don't think that's what he. And Danny, I found the better the writers, the better the producers, the more willing, Kevin Williamson on Dawson's Creek, whatever, the more willing they are to listen to your ideas. As long as they realize you're trying to feed the character and not your own ego. Right. I had a director say to me, Ship, you're the only actor I know who cuts his own lines. I said, well, I'd rather say something once and have it have an impact. He said, well, what do you, what do you think he needs to say? I said, I don't know, but it's something about da 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 And he said, say that, say that. That's what he needs to Boom. say, say it. And so I found that whether it's daytime TV or prime time, that as soon as they suss out that you're not padding your part and you're not feeding your ego, they will listen to your ideas. They don't always accept them. I remember I was doing this one crazy part on One Life to Live. I was ad-libbing so much. I mean, it was like, can I crack the cameraman up? This was outrageous, <laughs> petty thief, delusions of grandeur that he was this slick criminal, but he was just this little petty thug who right. couldn't pull off a big game, but abused his sons, Eddie Ford on One Life to Live. And I like, uh, I was like coming on to one of my son's girlfriends and the shortest of my three sons. And he comes in and catches me. And it's this outrageous exchange between the three of us. Finally, he throws me out of the apartment. So I threw in this line because I was taller than him. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I'll leave. I got no interest in staying here in this depressing place. And then I said, uh, when you're ready to supersize, you know where to find me. Of course, I was talking about height. But the, cam the cameraman fell off the camera. He was laughing and they kept it in. The only thing that I remember talking about hits and misses, I was doing a scene and it was this impressionistic scene where me and my oldest son were in hell. We ended up in hell and we're talking and I'm laying back and I'm doing all this stuff. At one point, he's bearing his soul and Eddie was sarcastic and he goes, yeah, tell it to the Marines. And he looked at me and I threw in, oh yeah, we've got some of them in here too. And the executive producer came to me and he said, John, you can't say that there are Marines in hell. I said, I'm not saying all Marines are in hell, but, you know, percentage-wise, and I, I go up on my spiel. He said, John, it's Memorial Day. <laughs> we have let you say anything you wanted. You cannot say that there are Marines. I said, okay, okay, okay. It's a wild ride. People say, what's your favorite role? I said, whichever one I'm doing right now. Are you still active on stage? I did a production of 12 Angry Men at the Judson Theater in Pinehurst, North Carolina several years ago. And then we did staged readings of it in Connecticut. And Mike Boland, who's an actor, filmmaker, he just had film at festivals, Yo! Andrea, about boxers. He was my juror number three, and I got to be juror number eight, the Henry Fonda part. And I'll tell you, Mike Bolin is the best juror number three antagonist that <laughs> I will ever see. I will ever see. It doesn't matter. Stage, film, he is a phenomenal actor, and he wants to get a production together the beginning of the summer, another production of 12 Angry Men in Connecticut, and we're looking at June. I definitely want to get back on stage. I was doing a play in workshop right before COVID 
about Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda and their lifelong friendship despite romantic rivalries and vast political differences. It's like Jimmy Stewart testified to the House on American Activities Committee and Henry Fonda finds out and it's huge. It almost destroys their friendship. The metaphor is they're building a plane every Sunday afternoon. They get in a garage and they build intricate model airplanes. So that becomes a metaphor for the friendship. At one point, things become so tense that they smash the plane, smash the relationship. And then they spend the rest of the play putting it, the relationship, the plane back together. It never goes back exactly the way it was but by god by the end of the play they're able to make it fly out over the audience and i thought that is so important what an important play for the united states of america in 2022 mm. how do you stay in relation with people with whom you have major vast political and ideological differences. And it was written by David Gregory, and it was just such a beautiful play. We workshopped it in New Orleans at Le Petit Carré Theater down there in New Orleans, and then COVID hit. And there went my six-year Hallmark contract, <sighs> Herring Mysteries. There went Hank and Jim build a plane. There went another episode or two of you know something else everything just kind of dried up i want to get back on stage and i'd love to get back on stage with mike and do that that's such a great play talk about timely as well 12 angry men yeah i know you just said you know when people ask you your favorite roles you say the one you're doing next or currently but stage specifically is there a role roles that come to mind when you think man i really love doing that did you ever play macbeth or something like that i'd have to say one of my absolute favorite roles was the Welsh wastrel Jenny Evans in Dancing at Lunasa. For a number of reasons, it was a period piece. Everyone else on stage was Donegal Irish. And Julia Wilson Dixon, who you will see as the linguist, advisor, supervisor on period pieces with accents, a lot of movies and stage. At the beginning of our four-week four rehearsal, she said, now, Jerry Evans is supposed to be from South Wales. She says, an, an American doing a South Wales accent, it's like speaking Chinese. She said, so you can either do Donegal Irish, which is much easier, everyone else on stage is doing it, or we can work on it. And if at the end, I feel like you're not getting it, you can switch to Donegal Irish. Well, about a week before opening, she had this big book that she had all her notes and I had my drills and my tapes and my edits. It's such an interesting accent placement. She closed the book. She said, well, congratulations. It's the first instance that I know of, of an American successfully doing a South Walian accent. And that's what I did on stage. So much so at one point that the stage manager had to come to me and say, John, we can no longer understand what you're saying. <laughs> Two wells, two wells. You got to bring it back. <laughs> it's important that we, you know, that an American audience get all the words. So I have to tell you, that's one of my favorite roles. The role that I did, my leading lady was Julianne Moore on As the World Turns, the role I described before. Stephen Weber, Julianne Moore, Julia Pagano, great actress who understudied Zoe Caldwell and Medea on Broadway and has done so many things. We were all in this story, Kathy Hayes, we're all in this story together, this intense, it was a 10-month story, the one that Doug Marlin wrote. That's still one of my favorite parts because he was an evil guy, bad guy, did bad things, but a deep wound as a result of a real deep wound. And the best compliment I got was the production man from Procter & Gamble saying to our head writer, he said, well, 
If you had told me that I would have sympathy for a character that came in and wreaked havoc on the lives of these people, you know, that I've had a hand in creating all these years, I would have said you were crazy. I said, but you and John managed it. It was sad. And that's my theory about playing bad guys anyway. You don't play bad guys. You play whatever caused it. It's not so much the what as the why. What was done to this person? And if it's not on the page, if it's not, then you create it, you invent it. Us laymans hear the term method acting thrown out a lot. What does that term mean to you? And is it something that you employ in your toolbox? You know what? I've studied when I was starting to scratch the surface of these roles that went deeper. I worked with John Sarno in L.A. who lived with Lee and Anna Strasberg the last seven years of Lee's life and was an heir apparent of the actor's studio got out of those politics, opened his own studio. So I got a lot of method is a term that was slapped on. It could have been called the process. It's just working with sense memory, with personalizations, with truth of the moment, with private moments, a lot of sense memory and training your concentration so that you have a lot going on under the line. And what bubbles up is hopefully truthful to varying degrees on any given night or moment, (laughs) truthful behavior. And I mean, you'd walk into some of these classes, we'd all be doing, this one would be doing a smell exercise, this one would be doing a taste, this one would be doing a hearing exercise, and we'd all be, and you express through like loud sounds, yells, screams, it was like walking into a fucking insane asylum. (laughs) You know what I mean? But it was getting, scraping, scratching, scraping down, which is where it was a method to get to truthful, real behavior and to break down what up until that time in the 50s, when Strasbourg, you know, when they opened the actor's studio, was up to that time, very technique very much up here very and to rip all that down and to get dirty and as i say smelly i always talk in terms of different people work from sound different people work from sight different people have stronger senses taste smell is a big one is a direct route to the emotions and i always talk about performances or shows that have odor or they don't And what I mean is if you're watching something and it has no odor, it's not real. It's too tidy. There's something either in the stage production or the acting. It's it's too surface. It's not three-dimensional. So it's a much abused term because it got so in the 80s. In a professional context, you told someone you were a method actor, you just might as well say, don't hire me. Because they would think about a lot of self-indulgent behavior that was carried out of the classroom onto the set. And there was a lot of emotional jerking off going on, taking up everyone's time. And trying everyone's but none of that that that's that's your homework that's to get to the inner life so that you can produce it you know when you get in front of the cameras or on the stage or whatever so it's it was abuse but you could abuse anything i also studied with bill esper in new york who is a student of sanford meisner and that's all about acting is reacting that you put your full focus and attention on the other person and you don't do i don't do anything that you don't make me do i'm processing you're shaking your head and you've got mm-hmm. a particular look on your face and I'm assessing on one level what I think the response is that you're having which causes me to have a response you know and the good thing about that is it gets you out of yourself and it connects you with the other actor now I've seen people doing Meisner and it's like it's ridiculous it's not meant to be that and also sometimes you get stuck doing your close-up with the script person or 
an AD because of schedule conflicts. And they may just be reading the lines. Or if you're in an audition and they don't have a really good reader, if I only do what that person makes me do, I'll just be pissed off the entire scene. So then I fall back on a sound or a taste or a particular smell that will generate privacy and can call up an emotion, whatever that emotion or that privacy that I need for that particular scene. So it's kind of you know, I've kind of stuck it together with spit and chewing gum. You know, the method is a term that was slapped on the new wave of realism and truth. Brando, James Dean, you know, these people, Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg began applying so that you began getting these performances that really made you uncomfortable because you felt like you were watching or seeing something that maybe you shouldn't have been privy to. You did mention a few minutes ago Dawson's Creek. Now, I'm a child of the 90s, so it was impossible to grow up in the 90s without coming across <laughs> Dawson's Creek. When you look back on that set and the production and such, what are your memories that come to mind? You know, next year, I was just contacted by Sony. Next year is the 25th anniversary of the start. Uh, next year, yeah, next month, which is also next year, the 25th anniversary of Dawson's Creek going on the air. So we'll be doing some promotion. I was off in Moab, Utah, doing a little movie called The Lost Treasure of Dos Santos with David Carradine, Lee Majors, Kathy Lee Crosby, Michelle Green. And we were searching for the lost treasure of Dos Santos in Moab, Utah, <laughs> when the first casting call went out for Dawson's Creek. So there was initially a different dad for the pilot presentation, which was basically, they took 20 minutes out of what would be the pilot and shopped that around. When they decided to go in a different direction with the dad, I saw the pilot presentation. I was like, this is different from any show I've seen written for kids yeah. or young people. I have been fortunate in my career several times to land in mediums, which were the beginning of a new way. In the early 80s, it was the youth revolution on daytime TV. My dressing roommate was Kevin Bacon. My leading ladies were Julianne Moore. You know, yeah. uh, we had 22 million viewers a week. That was a new way of looking at daytime TV. When I landed on the Flash, it was the beginning of a new way of telling comic book superhero stories. When I landed Dawson's Creek, it was a new way of writing stories for young people, not writing down to a young, you know, not writing down to them, but writing up to them. Yeah. I remember this big star said after having seen an episode or two, she said, well, young people don't talk like that. And Kevin Williamson, without hesitation, shot back, maybe not, but they'd like to. So to have these layered, introspective kids with these situations reflected in the adult storylines, open marriage, divorce, whatever it was, alcoholism, and to have the vocabulary to express it. It was just a whole different way. And people forget because anything that becomes that big of a pop hit has its inevitable, it becomes late night talk show fire, yeah, right? Yeah. And then it becomes a joke and then it assumes its proper level in the development of whatever medium it is. And I think Dawson's Creek is achieving that. Now we forget that at the beginning, people were like, wow, the critically acclaimed Dawson's Creek, Editor's Choice, 
every week. And then there were 8 million copies. And then it became a punchline, inevitably, because it became so popular. And now there's a reassessment at comic book conventions. There are a lot of young people going up to me having just discovered Dawson's Creek or were just in the process of rediscovering or no, for them it'd be Discovery, Dawson's Creek, and also the original Flash, which is, I'll put in a little plug, all the episodes are streaming on Tubi. There you uh, go. The 1990 Flash. So it was, again, it was a, it was an extraordinary young cast that went from relative unknowns to international stardom practically overnight. And we were all in Wilmington, North Carolina. So here's L.A. and the bright lights and all the temptations, the clubs and fast living. We're in Wilmington, North Carolina, over here, on the southeastern coastal town. And it was like a family. We were protected, I think, from some of the excesses that we might have encountered with a young cast who became stars overnight by being in sort of like a family. The group would get together. People had boats. Mary Margaret Humes uh, had a boat. You know, we had jet skis, uh, Masonboro Island, you know, it, 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 hanging out together. I remember James Vanderbeek was so proud when he signed his first autograph. You know, he went and told <laughs> Mary Margaret. And when Varsity Blues came out and it played in Wilmington, his real parents weren't there. So he took his TV parents to go see Varsity Blues oh, that's cool. you know, with him. And I loved it the way that was written, too, particularly at the beginning, because Dawson was so awkward and he was much more cerebral than Mitch, his dad. But what a great dad. He just loved him and he did the best he could. He knew that Dawson was smarter than him. But I just love those scenes. I, I remember one scene that particularly stands out, the construct of which blew my mind. Joey was in love with Dawson. Okay, I'll use their real names. Katie Holmes <laughs> was in love with James Vanderbeek. James Vanderbeek was in love with Michelle Williams, right? A uh, character. So he was asking Mitch about he had never kissed a girl, kissing a girl. What do you do? What's it like? Now, meanwhile, Dawson is making a horror film. So he has a prosthetic head of Joey katie holmes mm -hmm. sitting on the dining room table because at one point in his movie her head's going to get lopped off right so there's joey's prosthetic head sitting there we don't know that joey has climbed in the window and is up on the upper landing watching us discuss first time i kissed his mother and then i say well, well, well go ahead practice you know practice keep your bottom you know keep your bottom lip loose don't stiffen up go ahead and practice on this prosthetic head of joey so here we have Joey, who's in love with Dawson, watching him practice on a prosthetic head of her in preparation <laughs> to kiss another girl. Whose mind did that come out of? <laughs> Williamson. That was the genius. It was just, it's one of those scenes that will always, I'll have tucked away as in, in my moments of really, really interesting, unusual scenes, you know. So what is the best acting advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? If you can be happy doing anything else, go do it. That <laughs> <laughs> was Jack Landis, my acting 101 teacher at Indiana University. So I have to say to people, I hate the business. The business is awful. I mean, it's like, what, 95% unemployment at any one time in the actors unions, you know, the hoops you have to jump to, but the work, the work I love. If you love it, if you love the work so much that you have to do it, it's a calling. You're stuck with the business. <laughs> <laughs> this is John, this is something I like to ask everybody because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Nothing that I 
point to. I mean, we've all had those, I've been here before, but nothing like, it was very, very odd. I had this very close friend in New York and it was before 9-11. And he was telling me that he was having these dreams that building was bursting into flames and people were jumping out of the windows. He kept having this nightmare and it was troubling him. And he told me all this before 9-11 ever happened. And then that was pretty. Yeah, we'll count that one. <laughs> wow. I was like, it wasn't mine. It was yeah. his. It was like, wow. So have you seen any movies that have moved you recently? Well, I just saw an episode of it last night. It was Wednesday which is mm. a lot of fun. Movies that have really moved me or blown me away recently. No singular one comes to mind. Of course, it's Christmas season, so every Christmas season I go back and watch the classics. We had this friend visiting. She was with my family in Atlanta, and she was there, and we put in It's a Wonderful Life, and she's looking very confused. And she's like, didn't we watch this last year? And we're like, oh yeah, we watch this every year. She was like, why? <laughs> get it. but no i wish you know as soon as i get off as soon as we end this call i'll go i'll think of one i'll go oh of my course, god yeah that's how it goes what? well john just to put a bow on everything this afternoon uh, is there anything on the horizon for you that you can share without getting into trouble i go back next month to shoot as i said the last final season my contribution in the last final season of the flash which my show was 32 years ago and i never expected to have this resurgence with so many characters now, what did i say five characters across four different shows over 30 years wow. you know it's been a wild it's been a wild ride and we're trying to get this theater trying to get this production of 12 angry men together yeah. and then in a 43 year career i don't think i have maybe once but i have rarely if ever known before the end of one job and this is something for aspiring actors to hear. I have rarely known before one job ended what the next job would be. So you spend, the work is great while you're doing it, but you spend a lot of time in the hallway. More time in the hallway than in the room. But I have been fortunate and I'm mindful of uh, good fortune. The, I, I played superheroes and psychopaths. And <laughs> I, Very. I, sure. <laughs> every minute of it well john it's been a pleasure talking to you man like i said i'm gonna cut you loose so thank you again thank you excellent buddy thanks it's good to talk to you it's been an interesting uh no it's been a very interesting hour thank you thank you john you have a great day so long buddy all right folks that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed that chat with john as always thanks for listening and we'll see you back next time monsters madness and magic <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? 
The sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.